There's this great story about an Imperial Japanese soldier, Hiro Onoda, who refused to surrender at the end of the Second World War. He ended up holding out in the Philippines for 29 years after the war had ended. He wouldn't listen to his family, friends, or anyone who told him that it was all over. It was only in 1974 when his former commander came to him and relieved him of his duty that he finally laid down his arms and returned home. Although the soldier is clearly on the extreme side of the stubborn scale, there's a bit of him in all of us. Humans reject change, we don't like it. Whether it's updated banknotes or a new face in the 6pm news, it always takes us a while to get used to change. And in an industry that's all about changing people's minds, this can be a bit of a challenge. So in today's episode, we talk to TRA Head of Strategy, Colleen Ryan, about how we can go about changing people's minds. I'm Damien Venuto, and this is episode 6 of the Stop Press Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hi Colleen, how are things going on your side? Uh, they're going very well from my side, thank you. It's a lovely day today. So, um, we've spoken a few times um, over the last few months about human beings and from our conversations I've kind of deduced that humans tend to be quite stubborn creatures. Would that be something fair to say? I think it's fair to say and I think the word stubborn has come about um, because we didn't really understand why we behaved the way we behaved. So we appeared to be stubborn um, and irrational and now we know that that's true. Um, We are (laughs) irrational. Uh, Whether we still need the word stubborn I don't know. (laughs) It's funny because the perception that we have of ourselves is often that we're these rational creatures um, calculating every decision that we make, but, but you're kind of suggesting that that's not the case at all? Um, it's the case that we make some decisions, but if those decisions don't kill us, then we just keep making that same decision. So we're like a, we're like a record on repeat. Um, you know, if it worked once, it will work again, and why listen to something else? So it's really more learned behaviour. A lot of what we do is learned behaviour. But also a lot of um, uh, the reasons we behave the way we do are, are actually hardwired from, you know, not, not just birth, but from, you know, from the beginning of mankind, really. So um, we are very sophisticated creatures these days, but actually a lot of our behaviour is based on pretty primitive needs. But that, I suppose that creates a major issue for advertising agencies that are in the business of changing behaviour. So you've mentioned that there are three core strategies that we could perhaps use to change someone's behaviour. So what, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on those strategies? What are they? How do they work? How, how do you change the way somebody thinks if we are hardwired, if we're records on repeat? How do you go about shifting that and changing the tune, essentially? Um, it's not easy, is the first thing to say. <laughs> um, but... You know, what we've learned is how not to do it. Um, A lot of what we know now is um, the things that we used to think worked. So, for example, a good good many dollars have been spent over the years in changing people's attitudes. Um, We know pretty much conclusively now that attitudes don't drive behaviour. So, for example, there's no point in trying to persuade smokers that smoking's bad for you. Um, Every smoker will, will, you know, hit the high points on an attitude scale of it's bad for me, it um, it uses up a lot of my uh, money. There's all kinds of good reasons why I uh, shouldn't smoke, but, you know, here I am. And they're not secrets either. No, absolutely not. So we know that attitudes don't um, change behaviour. 
We also have to start our thinking from the premise that fundamentally people don't want to change their behaviour. Um, you know, it's really, uh, you've heard the term, I'm sure, lazy thinking. And, and it's true, you know, why change? Change is a nuisance. It disrupts your life. You, you were talking earlier, you've just moved house. I mean, how traumatic has that been? You have to learn a new way to get to work. You know, you don't have to work out how the taps work. Uh, there's some lovely experiments where they do really simple things like just change the way the fridge door opens. So instead of opening left to right, uh, open right to left. And I suppose the, that's also why we use a spatial metaphor for, uh, we call it the comfort zone. Yeah, it, it's that, the space. That's exactly right. And, and change makes people uncomfortable. All change makes you feel uncomfortable. So, and, it, and it loads our brains up. So you change the way the fridge door opens. And now you're holding the milk in the wrong hand and you can't open the... So you're now tucking the milk under your arm to open... I mean, it's absurd, <laughs> but it's true. And you can't think of anything else while you're doing that. So we think of our brains as these amazing machines indeed they are but actually practical things give us cognitive overload so if we can take a whole bunch of those things out of our decision making every day then we free up our brains to do the more interesting and exciting and useful things you've mentioned that there are three potential ways that we could pressure somebody into perhaps changing their opinions or their mind a little bit um, do you maybe want to touch on those three three methods? Yeah, I mean, there's the, the very many variations on that, but um, there's a lot. I mean, the, the work of um, Daniel Kahneman, of course, has you know taught us a lot about the way we think, and um, he refers to System One and System Two. Uh, it's a slightly blunt instrument that, and and I also think it it's. It can be misleading to make people think there's only those two ways that we that we think, whereas our levels of consciousness are much greater. So, if you're trying to be change a behaviour that's happening at the utterly unconscious level, and a lot of our behaviour is at the unconscious level, you need one kind of strategy. If you're trying to change a behaviour that's happening on what this autopilot, you know, habitual level, then you need another strategy. So, for example, for habitual behaviour, you need to find a way of disrupting that habitual behavior so if I if I go back to the idea that you know attitudes don't affect behavior I've got really bad attitudes to coffee I think it's terrible stuff it it's acidic it melts my bones we don't farm it well around the world it's you know all yeah. stains my teeth but I go down and buy two long blacks every morning now if you're going to change my behavior around drinking coffee you're not going to do it by changing my attitudes but you could do something at the point at which I'm standing at the counter ordering my long black you can disrupt my behavior at that point and that's more likely to create a behavior change for these kinds of habitual behaviors then there are behaviors that we do give a little thought to you know I have to make a choice I have to choose from a menu or I have to you know decide which which camera I'm going to buy and those do involve our cognitive processes but we thin slice information so we take one I look at the camera and it's green I like green that'll be the best one so you know we take very thin slices of information and and choose on that yeah. basis and then we've also got our own inbuilt biases and these really are they're kind of hardwired biases you know loss aversion comes from the fact that it used to be jolly hard to go and hunt for food and you know hanging on to it was really important so you know some of those things but and you can't fight against them they 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 are hardwired so in terms of behavior change you have to look at which of those biases is causing the behavior and work with it 
Okay. So, you know, you get things like um, defaults. So, you know, sometimes you have to tick a box. If you want something, you have to tick a box. If you don't want something. Um, and the results of that kind of behaviour change can be phenomenal. You can switch around a 20% uptake to an 80% uptake by simply changing the default. So uh, for the, the best example is from the organ donation um, sector. So uh, it, one of the Scandinavian countries used to have a system whereby if you, on your driving licence, if you were willing to donate your organs, if you were killed in an accident, you had to tick a box. Now on their driving licence, and they had about 20% uptake, now on the driving licence it says your organs will be given for donation unless you tick this box to say they can't be. Now there's an 80% uptake. Oh, so, wow. you know, at a stroke. <laughs> now, how many, what would a marketing manager do? <laughs> if you could to, change everything. To uh, change his brand share or his... By yeah, 60%. Or her, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, these things can make massive changes. So that's at this kind of bias level. And then obviously we know also that, you know, there are some decisions we do really take great pains to try to be terribly rational about. You've just taken out a mortgage. I would hope you didn't do it on a whim, you know. Yeah. You spent a little time. You discussed it with your partner. <laughs> But we, you know, and we historically would have thought that was a purely rational set of decisions. Whereas, of course, what we now know is long before you even thought about making that decision, your brain was washed through with the emotions that you feel around the brands that you could have chosen from for that mortgage, the type of mortgage. All of those things were affected by your emotions. So what emotions. are some of the, 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 the impacts that, that um, drive that that, that, that behavior so um, would it be your peers would it be society would it be the culture that you're you're in what are some of the things that drive that like hardwired so decision making okay so there's three big buckets really um there's you as an individual and any mother will tell you that two children come out with different personalities so you know you are different you may have a sweet tooth and i've got a more savory tooth you know um They've, they've even found now that, you know, people talk about being a morning person or not a morning person. That's, that's hardwired in the DNA. So, of course, you can fight against it. If you're not a morning person, but you end up with a job that requires you to start at six in the morning, you know, you get over it. But, but you know, most people would say they are naturally one or the other. You've just given me a great excuse <laughs> for being 10 minutes late to yeah, work exactly. every day. <laughs> so, you know, so some of it's about you as an individual. So that's the nature aspect of nature nurture. But the two other big influences on our lives are social and cultural. So, so social is the various social groups that you interact with. And, um, we, you know, we, we heard we herd animals, you know, we, we want to run with the herd, but we don't just run, you know, our lives are, compl our society is complicated, so we don't just run with one herd, you know, you will run with maybe, I don't know, maybe you play squash, you know, so you'll have some friends at the squash club, there'll be the people you went to school with, you'll be uh, the people you work with, so, you know, this, there'll be your family, so, and each of those social groups will exert a different kind of influence upon you and, and affect your behaviour, so, for, for example, I belong to a, a book club, ladies of a certain age and probably that book club would influence things like the clothes that I wear or the hairstyle that I have a different group of uh, social group would influence my behavior for example I wouldn't discuss with my book club whether I'm investing enough in my pension yeah. but there are other friends that I have where I would have those conversations you know whether it's worth buying property or whether we should be putting it in investment schemes so different social groups will influence different 
parts of my life and different behaviours. So, so to understand the individual, you need to understand the social groups. Yes, yeah, so you have to do sort of social network mapping. So, for example, something like um, civil defence, where you know we would like everybody in the country to be well prepared. It's hardly a country that isn't volatile, is it? I mean, we've had a in recent history, of course, you know, a massive event in in uh, Christchurch. Nevertheless, the number of people who are well prepared is very low, or number of households. So, is that a which social group is it? Is that about the neighbours? Is that about your family? Who who would influence your behaviour around that? So, social network mapping is a really good way of, of looking at that. And then the third big influence on our lives is is culture. Um, now that's traditional culture and obviously each ethnic group has its own you know mores and, and ways of behaving um, but also the kind of current the, you know these big uh, cultural currents that sweep the world and you know have different applications in different cultures influence everything I mean if you, if you and I go out for lunch and we take Claire you know I might look at the menu and um, I, I'm into sustainability at the moment so I'd ask them whether the fish was line caught, you know. You might be into on a wellness thing at the moment and you'd be looking at the menu to see um, which dishes... Uh, Pete's paleo you know, diet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Claire's a, an, is, is, is massively into experientialism, so she's trying to find the dish that's got the most exotic ingredient. So we're looking at that, all three of us, looking at that menu through a cultural lens. It's like wearing coloured glasses yeah. in a way. So culture has a big influence on our behaviours. So if we're looking at behaviour change, the first thing you have to look at is how is that behavior established first of all and the, so those are the influences is it an individual personal thing is it more influenced by um, uh, social networks or is it more influenced by culture and different markets will lend themselves naturally to greater influence from one or other of those so I think of them as like big planets that are exerting a gravitational pull. And if you're nearer to one, you get pulled more that way oh, wow. than another. So, you know, different markets will be positioned differently around that. So those things influence us. That's how the behavior was established initially. The second thing we need to look at is, and so now that behavior is established, how is it being reinforced? So like, what are the triggers that happen that make you know, we all know that yeah. something happens and you do something else without thinking about it. So what are the tri triggers? What are the involuntary stimulus that we're unconsciously possibly seeing or feeling or smelling or hearing that make us behave in that way? So that's the next stage. And then the stage after that, the behavior change is how do you make the uh, pathway to change relevant to the influences but also easy and effortless because nobody will change if it's difficult. <laughs> easy <laughs> is like the mantra of any behavior change. You, know? yeah. you have to make it easy. But the other really big thing, and I think this is the bit that gets neglected a bit, is it then has to be rewarding. So I have to do it and I have to feel rewarded by it. That I made the right decision, that it wasn't. Yeah, and it has to be an emotional reward and it has to be constantly rewarded. So something like civil defence, there you go, you buy your kit, you know, you get your water and your bars of chocolate and all the batteries you need. And then uh, hopefully, you, you know, you hope you may never use it. It's like a parachute. It's kind know? of like buying insurance. Or so you never really want to use really it. You never really use it. So there has to be a more immediate reward. You can't wait 25 years for the next earthquake to go, well, I did the right thing there, didn't I? I feel good about myself. You know, that there's no reinforcement in that. So that, then, you know, for behavior change to be reinforced, there has to be a more immediate reward. And it has to be an emotional reward. You have to feel good about what you just did. You have to get a, an upper 
in some way. So, you know, that's how we, that's one of the ways we work with clients is what are we, how are we going to reward people for doing this to keep them in the game? Because you lapse very quickly. I mean, anyone knows anything about addiction knows, you know, the, the first non-drinking day is not the good one. It's the, <laughs> it's the next one and it's the next one. So. On the topic of this pathway to behaviour change yeah. and... Um, shifting people's perceptions and so forth. You guys are doing some interesting work with Auckland Council at the moment in terms of getting people onto bicycles. Um, how are you going to get more Aucklanders onto bicycles and what are some of the, the pitfalls that you guys are facing in, in, in your research? Yep. So you're not going to do it by wagging fingers at them or telling them what to do or shouting at them. <laughs> so, you know, we know that doesn't work. You know, even financial incentives don't, you know, everyone would give up smoking, wouldn't they, if it was just about the money? Of course. Um, you know, why, and why would I pay for my gym that I never go to? Um, Guilty. I'm sure I'm not the only one in the world who pays for a gym that they don't use. So, you know, so we, ha we obviously have to find um, more subtle ways of doing that. So you go back to those influences, really. So you look at the social environment. So we have to make it feel normal. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the zebra running in a herd of horses. So I don't want to feel like I'm the only person out there walking to work in, you know, not my work shoes, but my, you know, trainers, and I'm going to change when I get there. I don't want to feel like I'm the only person on the bike. So you've got to feel, make it feel like everybody else is doing it. So it feels like the socially normative thing to do rather than the odd thing to do. So that's a social thing. I suppose that's also, I mean, there's always going to be a very small percentage of people who want to be odd. The vast majority of people yep. want to kind of be But part everybody of a wants group. to be odd, wants to be odd with the other odd people. Yeah, they don't want to be odd by themselves. <laughs> so <laughs> odd is a odd is a strange thing, you know? Um, because you just want to be odd because you want me to look at you and go, oh, he's odd like those other odd people. So you're st it's still part of a tribe. It's just the odd tribe. It's like the hipster tribe, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The hipster tribe is exactly that. You know? so, and, you know, it's quite interesting, those odd tribes. <laughs> the rules around them are pretty, like, there's hipster and there's not really hipster. So, I mean, the <laughs> rules about them are in many ways more rigid than they are around looser sort of social, <laughs> social groups, yeah. So we didn't want people to relate to the, you know, middle-aged men in Lycra. It's not a pretty picture. No. Already it's in my head and I can't erase it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we needed to find a better thing for them to relate to. So that's the social thing. Um, the individual thing, the individual thing was about reward. What we found was we, we asked people to do this for an experiment for a period of time. And people get a, not the buzz they thought they'd get out of it. They thought it would, they'd feel a bit worthy, you know, mm -hmm. and doing the right thing. But actually people went, I love it. I listen to my podcasts or I have this headspace. Like I walk home, by the time I get home, I'm actually calm because I've cleared my head. So people realised there was a mental, personal, individual like reward. Yeah. So we needed to get that across. And then, you know, the cultural codes have to be right as well. It has to be seen to be the way things are going in the world. It had, you know, people in Amsterdam bike everywhere. It doesn't, again, it's, a, it's about being normative, but it's about creating the right cultural codes that people can then relate to. And, and it's about being relative. normative and progressive at the same time because you don't want to create the perception that you're moving backwards by no, getting a bicycle. No, And that's why it's really important to understand people's culture because there are cultures in the world where riding a bicycle is seen as a backward step. It means it's, you know, poor people yep. ride bikes, people can't afford taxis or cars. Now, you know, we've got a massive amount of ethnic diversity in Auckland. It's wonderful. It's making it a fascinating city. But we also have to take some of those cultural diversity issues on board because 
you know, you as a Kiwi, you know, you go out with your kids at the weekend and ride the bikes. It's kind of riding bikes is, is good Kiwi stuff. So now we just got to get you to do it going to work. Whereas if you've come from an Asian, uh, some of the Asian countries where riding, a, you've come here to better yourself and now we want you to ride a bike. So you have to take those traditional cultures uh, cultural codes on board as well as the you know the current trend towards a uh, you know more open uh, being out in the fresh air yeah. and you know exercise is good for you so that's a current trend but these traditional cultural codes are also very important you just have to understand them because you have to just address them somewhat differently so for those people we can talk to them about you want to be a kiwi you know this is a kiwi thing you know so which they don't know we assume people come here and know all about us and they know nothing, you know, you yeah. go to a new country and you will see things and you'll ask local people about it and they'll look at you as, as though you're mad because you, they don't even see that those things anymore. So, you know, there is a there is a difference between these kind of big cultural trends or, that, you know, that affect us but and our, and our traditional sort of cultural... And I suppose, as well. I mean, it's particularly in, in when we're dealing with behaviour change, you want that message to resonate with the person that you're trying to talk to because if... If that message isn't reflective of what the, the way that they think or the the way that their their brain has been pre-wired, it, you're not going to change no, anything. That's exactly that's exactly right. And in fact, you know, some of the um, one of the things we found was that um, you know a very worthy attempt to make drivers give space to car, to, to bikes on the road. You, you know, you've seen the ads give the give the give the rider a bit of space, share yeah. the road was actually feeding one of the fears people have about riding bikes, yeah, which is it's dangerous. You know? So here was something which was a very you know good attempt to make it safer for cyclists, but actually we were reconfirming a habit, which is, oh, I shouldn't be out there on my bike on the road. You know, it's okay in the park at the weekend. So, yeah, we can inadvertently sometimes change behaviour <laughs> in a contrary way to the way that, you know, that we would like to have done that. Wow. Yeah. Um, do you have any other thoughts on changing Kiwi's behaviour and any advice that you'd perhaps want to give to advertising agencies or anyone working in this space? Yeah, I guess one of the big shifts that um, it's made me think about, in, you know, because of the knowledge we have now about human behaviour, is that um, traditionally we've always looked deeper. Right, so you know that's a superficial response. So it's a post-rationalised one. Let's dig deep into this brain and you know, try and undercover, uncover these deep psychological um, drivers. Whereas actually, probably we should be looking wider rather than deeper. So looking at the cultural codes, looking at the social environment. You know, behaviour is driven very much by those things. Yes, of course, there's you know. I mean, I, you know, you might you might be driven by a need to impress and look good, and that's a personal individual thing. That's that's but fascinating. To whom, though. You know, who who you're looking good for? Which social group? You know, because um, what cultural what cultural codes are you applying to? What looking good is okay. Yeah, that's quite contrary to the trends that we're seeing at the moment, where everything's about the individual, getting as deep and learning as much about an individual as possible. But you're not going to change just an individual by itself, because as you said, right. we're herd creatures, so you mm -hmm. should be looking at those cultural codes rather than uh, whether 
this person is inclined to wear red pants on a Wednesday, for instance. That's right. Context is everything. And it's, it's a bit exis existential, you know, like we don't really exist in this. We persuade ourselves, <laughs> is this table we're talking on really here? But, but that's really, you know, it's true. Context is everything. The words words are meaningless without context, you know. The, 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 the social, uh, the, the way we respond in a social environment will massively affect everything, what we say, the brand we choose to, to buy, what we tell people about it afterwards, how our memories are laid down. So, you know, these things have a, you know, a huge impact um, on our lives and, and, and culture does too. And that's a really underplayed one, I think, because, you know, a friend of mine talked about culture as being like a goldfish in, in a bowl. You know, you're in the water. You don't, when you look out from the gulf, you don't realize there's no water out there. Culture is the water we're swimming oh, wow. in. It's a great and, metaphor. And it has, you know, it has a, it has an impact on, on everything that we do. So, so I think looking wider rather than deeper is probably um, the change that people need to, to take on board when they're looking at how to change behavior. I think that's a great point for us to leave the, the discussion at, and I think it will give a lot of people um, something to think about. And it's definitely given me quite a few things to think about today, and it's been an absolute pleasure sitting down and talking to you, Colleen. All right, on this existential table. Yeah. <laughs> Does it even then. exist? Does it even <laughs> exist? If you liked today's episode, be sure to follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favourite podcast app. We have to have new episodes up as often as possible. Thanks for listening. <laughs>